First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you, and peace be multiplied. It was the early church father Augustine of Hippo who was a bishop of a church in North Africa. He wrote, salvation is God's way of making us real. And I like that. Salvation is God's way of making us real. And for some, Peter is only as real as the stories or the movies that you've seen about him. You may have read a book called The Big Fisherman. You may have saw movies based on the life of Peter. Your only familiarity with Peter may be from the Bible. But the person who has spent any time in the New Testament knows that Peter plays an important role in the church. Of the original 12 disciples, only three wrote inspired New Testament books. Matthew, John, Peter. Peter's name appears some 210 times in the New Testament. Now, I want you to think about that. His name appears some 210 times. Compare that with Paul's name who appears 162 times. But if you take the remaining 11 apostles or disciples that are mentioned in the New Testament, they are combined are mentioned 142 times. The New Testament has been written in such a way that many Bible teachers and scholars call Peter the apostle of hope. And the reason why they call him the apostle of hope is because of the references to hope, like in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. And then in verse 13, he's going to talk about be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace of God. In chapter 3, verse 15, he's going to talk about hope once again. Paul, we might think of him as the apostle of faith. And John the apostle, we might think of him as the apostle of love. But in this epistle, Peter will write about the source of our salvation in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The guarantee of our salvation in verses 3 through 5. And then he'll look at the joy of our salvation in verses 6 through 9. It's interesting to me, if salvation really is God's way of making us real... Peter's declaration of salvation and the historical evaluation of salvation and our response to salvation becomes an astonishing insight into the man, Peter. Peter's letter is filled with many important lessons. And if Peter's life and if Peter's circumstances tell us anything, it also tells us that our failures in the past aren't always indicative of what kind of ministry we're going to have in the present or the future. And Peter's example will also give us hope in another way. And you might think, well, what way is that? And that is that a broken heart and a shattered life and a broken past can provide great preparation when the need for hope is present. And I want to give you an example. I want you to stop and think about it for a moment. When you're under pressure, when you're under trial, when it feels like your world is falling in on you, who touches you more? The person who has been sheltered or the person who's been shattered? The person who says, I know what it's like to go through an amazing series of broken circumstances only to realize and experience the reality that comes with having a right relationship with God in Christ. One more thing. If you've ever received 
a word or a note or a reminder. A little note came in the mail. A little card came at just the right time in order to clear your mind and get you back on track, remind you about God's love and remind you about the truth of who you are in Jesus Christ. And this, this letter's for you. And the reason why that's important is because when you ask and answer the question, when did Peter write this note? The letter tells us that Peter wrote it from, of all places, Babylon. Look at chapter 5. Go to the end of the chapter and you'll notice in verse 13 it says, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. And so does Mark, my son. So right away, scholars ask and answer the question, well, what is this? Is, is this literal Babylon? Is this figurative Babylon? Is Peter really writing these words from between the shores of the Tigris and the Euphrates in what's now modern Iraq? Is Peter literally writing about that city Babylon or is he writing about a different city? Is this literal or is this symbolic? And some have suggested that this was a figurative way of referring to Rome. And the reason why people have come to that conclusion is because in Revelation chapter 17, verse 5, and in Revelation chapter 17, verse 18, the writer speaks of Babylon as a type and a picture of the world that stands in opposition to God and the things of God and the plan of God and the purpose of God. It could very well be that because of the profound persecution and the pronounced suspicion on the part of the Roman government officials, the Christians developed a kind of a secret code, if you will, so that they could understand one another, but that the outsider couldn't easily break the code. Mark, by the way, was with Peter at that time. We see that in in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, it seems to indicate that Mark may have been in Rome about the time that this letter was, was being written and the persecution of Nero against the Christians broke out in about 64 AD all the way to 67 AD. And so from the time that we were last opening up our Bible and we were looking at 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians till this particular time, some 20 plus years have gone by. It's been almost 40 years since Jesus was taken and crucified and rose from the dead. The emperor gave the enemies of Christ, every reason to take full advantage of the Christians. Remember, the young church is less than 40 years old, and already they're experiencing antagonism from local officials and Roman officials, but now something in particular has happened. The church has been accused of a terrible crime. And the terrible crime is a fire broke out in Rome in 64 A.D., and the Roman officials were taking steps to punish the church because it was the church that were, was being blamed for every wrong thing that was going on in the empire. So Christians were being rounded up daily and they were being burned nightly like some terrible, long-running play in Nero's gardens. The Christians would be gathered together. They would be bunched into groups. Some would be thrown to the, the wild animals. Some would be sewn up in skins. Some would literally be impaled on a single stake, and they would be driven through that pail. But before they were driven through the pail, they were, they were dipped in pitch, and then they were used to light his garden. Some scholars believe that Peter wrote this letter shortly after Paul's execution. And if that's the case, then it might be as late as 66 or 67 AD. And he sent the note with 
Silas. We learned about Silas in First and Second Thessalonians. Look back again at chapter 5, verse 12, where it says, But Silvanus, our faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. This Silas is the same Silas who accompanied Paul through Philippi, through Athens, through... Corinth, this is the close companion of Paul. And it could very well be that Silas would have been able to carry the specific information of Paul's martyrdom to the leaders in the local congregation. So remember, remember part of the point. Part of the point of this letter, it isn't just simply a letter to let you know how I'm doing. It's a letter to a group of people who are in hiding and who are terrified. It's also a letter that's probably been sent and placed in the hands of Silas because as he places the hands in the Silas and he makes the route, he has some surprising, some devastating, some heartbreaking information. Paul is dead and Peter's written us a note. Lewis Sperry Chafer said, quote, Anyone can devise a plan by which good people go to heaven. Only God can devise a plan whereby sinners, which are his enemies, can go to heaven. You might be wondering, why this book and why these words under this specific circumstance? That's what we're going to talk about. There are several themes in the little epistle. Peter will write about God's grace and salvation in chapter 1, verses 3, through chapter 2, verse 10. He will talk about God's grace in submission in chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to chapter 3, verse 12. And God's grace in suffering, that's from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 5, verse 11. So as you can imagine... The theme of suffering is important and pervasive, but it is also addressed in this little epistle. In verse 6, as you look ahead, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter's purpose is to remind the Christians, that the painful times and the difficult times and the times of suffering, it would be great for him to be able to write a note and say, hey, guess what? Pretty much the worst is already passed. But it's not true. The worst hasn't passed. As a matter of fact, the painful times, the difficult times, the times of suffering aren't over. But here's the point. If ever there was a time not to give up hope, it's now. That's what he's going to be writing. In the first chapter, God's grace in salvation will include living in hope in verses 3 through 12, living in holiness in verses 13 through 21, and then living in harmony in verses 22, then all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. And so you might be wondering, why in the world does he begin the letter this way? Well, hopefully I'm going to help you understand it. Look what it says in verse 1 again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We know the author, Peter. He claims to be an apostle, and so he is. He is a messenger of Jesus Christ. Yes, this is the same Peter who's mentioned in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. This is the same Peter who was the close companion of Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry and who was an eyewitness concerning the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. To the pilgrims of the dispersion, who are these pilgrims? It's also translated strangers, to the pilgrims or strangers. And the word is translated from a Greek adjective, para, parapitamos, or parapitamos, 
meaning para or para beside, epi, upon, demos, the people. The word taken collectively together like that came to mean a pilgrim, a stranger, a sojourner. Um, Another word that is used to describe this would be a person in exile. Perhaps the word that I think would best capture the emotional content of the word is refugee. And the reason why I use that word refugee is because hopefully it's a word that's going to awaken within your consciousness a sense of a person who is not just simply displaced, but a person who has been displaced in such a profound way that the the circumstance that they find themselves is completely foreign or completely alien to them. Dispersion is the word diaspora. It means scattered. And the idea is that this particular word only occurs one other place in the New Testament in John chapter 7 verse 35 where it's used of the Jews. In James chapter 1 verse 1 it it, it also includes the idea of Gentiles depending upon the context but again the idea of the diaspora are a part of the people of the covenant community who are fleeing for their lives and finding refuge in a safe place. And so Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia or Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia were all provinces north of Israel. As you're going north and you go past Syria into that little um, outcropping called Anatolia or Turkey, as you continue to go north up the coast, you come to a place called Pontus, which is the ancient language word for bridge. It was the land bridge that separated Europe and Asia. And so this is the area that's northern Turkey or just south of the Black Sea. As a matter of fact, one Bible writer who's written a a wonderful tool called the Bible Background Commentary, Craig Keener, he writes, quote, The sequence in which Peter lists the provinces of his intended readers reflects the route a messenger delivering a letter could take if started from Amistris and Pontus, although messengers from Rome were more likely to start at the province of Asia. Peter may start in his mind with a province farther from him and work his way around. James Moffat discusses the setting in in which the original recipients displaced Jews and displaced Christians would have found themselves, he writes, and I quote, this beautiful epistle is addressed to Christians in Asia Minor who needed heartening and encouragement under the strain of a persecution period. It was a time of tension due to interference by the state authorities who had obviously become suspicious of the Christian movement as immoral and treasonable. This set up in some circles of the church a feeling of perplexity and hesitation. Christians were suffering from the unwelcome attention of government officials as well as from social annoyances and they required to be rallied and the purpose of Peter is to recall them to the resources of their faith, hence the emphasis upon hope, unquote. Now this is, this is important. Peter is writing to a group of people who are running for their lives. The suffering and the pain and the persecution aren't simply, again, because they've experienced a downturn in the economy or because of unemployment or because of the loss of their savings. These are people who have been forced to flee for their lives. And you know what they've left? Their homes and their property and their estate and their business and their job and their friends and their church and their money. here's, Here's part of the idea. The location of the provinces are important for at least one reason. These are the places 
where people took off in order to hide, in order to try to survive. Now that becomes an important point for you. Peter's addressing a group of Christian believers who are experiencing all the emotional turmoil that comes when your life and your world has been completely upended. You see bits and pieces around the world as you follow the news. You'll watch an earthquake devastate Port-au-Prince. You'll watch a flood come an inland tsunami and wash Nashville down the street. You'll see a hurricane come and take away New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. And you'll think, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad, but I'm still safe in Colorado. Good thing we're there. It's a good thing it's the Mile High City. But guess what? All the feelings that a person experiences when they're hunted down for the slaughter, the fear, the restlessness, the sleeplessness, the anxiety, the stress, the uncertainty, the insecurity, the painful pounding of the heart, the looking over the shoulder, the idea that what little you have left, there's somebody who wants to take even that away from you. That's who he's writing to. You may not be physically running for your life. You may be mentally or emotionally running for your life, trying to stay, stay safe, be secure. You're running away in such a way that people who you think will cause you harm, you're running away from them. Imagine, imagine living in a world. Imagine living in a place where the only thing that is real, the only thing that is permanent, the only thing that is certain and secure is your salvation. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to begin to understand why Peter is going to talk about that so much. And the reason? We as believers are citizens of heaven. Our home and our hope is in Christ, in heaven with God. Our journey here is temporary. You see, the truth is, even though Peter is writing to the pilgrims who find themselves in this explosive circumstance, in a very real way, in a very real way, each and every one of us are pilgrims. We are strangers. We are exiles. We are refugees because we're living in a world that is committed to rebellion against God and persecution towards the saints. You may not be forced to leave your home today. You may not be forced to leave your country tomorrow. But the subtle squeeze and the pressure may come way sooner than you ever expected. Can you imagine living in a world where you are hated by your neighbors and you are viewed with suspicion and fear and you're condemned by the government? You see, that's who Peter is writing to. And you've got to understand something else. We're in this world to love and to serve. You have been placed in the exact circumstance that you have been placed in in order to love God and honor God and serve the Lord. We are in this world to provide a bold witness to the world in the person of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not in this world in order to adopt its principles and affections. When I came in, and I'm, I met uh, Bob O'Fee at the door on his T-shirt. He, he has N-O-T-W. You know what that stands for? Not of this world. I like that. Not of this world. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. Who better than Peter to provide us with the contrast of what it means to embrace the thoughts and the ways of the world only to be converted to Christ and instructed by the Lord. Remember, he goes through his series of, of faux pas and failures. He denies the Lord. Jesus is crucified. He rises from the dead. 
Jesus shows up, appears personally to Peter, and he says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. This is important. When Jesus explained how he had to go to Jerusalem, suffer, be killed, you'll remember it was Peter who took violent exception. He said, be it far from you, Lord. This shall not be done to you in Matthew 16, 22. You're wrong. And Jesus called Peter Satan. Because this Peter didn't have God's will in mind and God's plan in mind and God's purpose in mind. He was suffering from Jesus' deficit disorder. He didn't understand God's plan. He didn't understand God's will. He didn't understand God's purpose. Peter wasn't thinking according to God's will and God's wisdom and God's plan and God's pattern. Peter was thinking like a natural man. He was not thinking like a person who was taught by the Holy Spirit. But many years have gone by. And Peter understands how important, how life-giving, how blessed the execution of Jesus really was. Now he refers to the blood of Jesus being sprinkled. As a matter of fact, if you look in chapter 1, verse 19, he'll say, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, he begins to understand something, that the sacrifice of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus was the most important thing that could ever happen. Now I want you to think about this. There was a time in your life perhaps that you can look back on and you can say that the crucifixion of Jesus makes no sense. It makes no sense that the innocent should die for the guilty. And then all of a sudden it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense to you that Jesus should come and live and die, and that that death becomes the mechanism whereby you can have a right relationship to God in Christ. And so here is the deal. Peter certainly understands that. He understands that we live in a world where, where people don't think about things from God's perspective. They think from the perspective of me first instead of from God first. They think about fear instead of love. And they think about discourage instead of confidence in the word of God. They think about anger instead of patience and condemning others instead of putting up with others. They complain instead of being content. And they're, they're willing to utilize their way instead of God's way. Do you understand? That we're not of this world. And so... Many Christians no longer see themselves as despised exiles in a hostile world. As a matter of fact, many Christians see themselves trying to fit in. And again, I'm not talking about wearing your hair in the hairstyles of the world. I'm not even talking about using speech or eating the food that people in, in the world eat. I'm not talking about looking, living in a house where everybody else's house looks the same. I'm not talking about that. What I am talking about is a willingness to adopt an attitude that is in complete antithesis to what the Bible has to say. Hey, Unless I look out for myself, nobody will look out for me. That's not a Christian's attitude. The Christian's attitude is, God loves you and has saved you and redeemed you. There's so many people in our culture and society who call themselves Christian, but they're no longer willing to embrace the designation different or strange. There was a Christian rock group that used to sing, people think I'm strange and they think I'm a stranger because my best friend was born in a manger. <laughs> we laugh, but it's really true. 
When you adopt a biblical view of God and of the world and of Christianity in general and the gospel specifically, you will set yourself in antithesis against everything in the world. But Christians today, instead of embracing the cross, they shrink from it. And the reason why they shrink from it is because it is so antithetical to this world's way of thinking. Get something. Jesus says, sacrifice. Make sure you're satisfied. Jesus says, no. Make sure that you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We're willing to abandon the very thing that makes us who we are. Salt and light. We forfeit God's blessing. We make our churches weak and devoid of God's power by the Holy Spirit. God wants to use Christians in all levels of society and all walks of life. But few of us are wise and even fewer of us are noble. And few of us are willing to take the stand where the stand needs to be taken. I'm standing for Jesus, for his sacrifice. And in contempt of a world that hates God and rejects the Bible and rejects Jesus and rejects the Savior. And so many Christians, in order to fit in, they'll say, you know, I can't quite say I'm willing to reject the gospel and I'm willing to reject the Bible and I'm willing to reject the cross and I'm willing to reject the Savior. So we enter into these subtle, subtle forms of compromise. And Peter hurls a powerful rebuke at those who love the world and who love what the world longs for. The world wants fame and the world wants fortune and the world wants comfort and the world wants pleasure and the world wants to make sure that everyone accepts everyone else except for the Christians. Let's make sure we're tolerant except for the people who actually believe the Bible since these are senseless idiots, anti-social and anti-scientific. There's going to come a time where you will open up your Bible and your friend, your neighbor, your coworker will say, hey, that's very quaint. You read the Bible. Well, you know, this is really good because what a wonderful piece of literature it is. Western civilization stands on the shoulders of the Bible. Yeah. But you don't really believe it, do you? You're kidding me, right? You're joking. You actually believe that the Bible is true. And now the distance begins to take place. You see, Peter says, we're strangers. But we're not just strangers here on the planet Earth. There's something else that's strange about us. We have a strange destiny. We're headed for heaven. And so in verse 2 it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now think about that. In all of that that you've just heard and now he's addressing this letter. Now think about what's happening. Silas is carrying the document. He's already told him about the persecutions and the drama that's taking place in Rome and about the execution of Paul and that Peter's head is sure to follow. And they hear these words, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Who are the elect? The elect are those who are chosen by God for salvation. And right away, you'll get a theological balk. Wait a minute, you have to talk about that. The elect are those chosen by God for salvation? Are you going to suggest that there are some who are chosen for damnation? And that's not what I'm suggesting at all. Well, I don't believe you. Okay. And I don't believe in the Bible. And I don't believe in God. And I don't believe in Jesus. Then clearly you're not elect. But I want to be. Then believe. No. <laughs> no. 
foreknowledge is the word that you're going to be very familiar with. Prognosis. It's only used here in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. We've literally taken the whole word and borrowed it and adopted it into our own language. You know what the word prognosis means. It's a borrowed word that comes with prog, pro, before, and gnosis, knowledge. So prognosis means to know ahead of time. And so when it says elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, what does that mean? Well, it means that God knows everything about everything. God doesn't simply know what could possibly happen, although he knows that. He knows everything that has happened, everything that is happening, and everything that will happen. Foreknowledge, then, is that attribute of God which provides him in advance with all the facts about everything concerning the elect. D.W. Berko writes, quote, The early Christians believed that salvation is a gift from God, but that God gives his gift to whomever he chooses. And he chooses to give it to those who love him and obey him. Some might take exception with Mr. Berko's statement. Well, that must mean that you have something to do with it. That if you love him and obey him, then that means he chose you. Correct. But he chose you quite apart from anything that you ever did. Correct. He chose you before the world began. Correct. He chose you in time and space when before the world ever began, he chose you. Correct. I don't understand. Neither do I. When Charles Spurgeon was asked, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God and the freedom of human beings? And he said, I don't feel any need to reconcile friends. That the sovereignty of God and the invitation that is extended in Christ is real. And he chooses to give it to those who love him and obey him. And since God's choice takes place long before people love him and obey him, in Ephesians, Paul writes that God does this according to his own good pleasure. In other words, God makes choices and he does it according to his own plan and his own purpose. And now think about that for just a moment for the person who is running for their life. The person who's running for their life, Peter writes, there's a God who loves you. He's always loved you and he's always cared about you. He's always had a plan for you and he's always had a purpose for you. Some people draw the foolish conclusion that elect implies some superior quality on the thing chosen. And nothing could be further from the truth. God chose Jacob over Esau, not because Jacob was fundamentally better than Esau. God chose Israel over the other nations because Israel was better, because Israel was more spiritual, less likely to be stubborn and rebellious or willful or, or disobedient. I, I, I don't think so. Imagine a barker at a circus. And he says to a young child, Welcome to the big top. Hello, kid. Today is Kids Getting Free Day. Free admission for kids. And the kid gets on his bicycle. Then he begins to ride down the... I got into the circus for free. I got into the circus for free. I got into the circus for free. He goes back to the circus. He goes into the big tent. And the big tent is surrounded by, with kids in the neighborhood. Hey, wait a minute. I thought it was free admission. For me... It is. Well, how come all these other kids are here? It's free admission for all kids. Well, I don't feel as special as I did before. What? You're still chosen, and you still got in for free. We are those who are chosen by God because God has taken the initiative. Because God made up the plan. 
And so the word chosen, make no mistake about it, it doesn't leave room for elitism or arrogance. Here's the idea. The idea isn't supposed to generate a sense of of, uh, superiority. It's supposed to generate a, 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 a sense of humility and joy and assurance and encouragement. God has a plan for you. He chose you. He loves you. He wants to save you. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. To be holy and blameless before him in love. He didn't choose you so that you could be arrogant and conceited and selfish. He chose you so that you could be holy and blameless and stand before him in love. And so he says, you're chosen by the Father, but you're also sanctified by the Spirit in sanctification of the Spirit. The elect are chosen by God, the Father, and then they're sanctified by God, the Holy Spirit. And remember what that word means. Sanctification means set apart. The word meant to be set apart from sin and then to be set apart for God. We learned about this in 1 Thessalonians and also in 2 Thessalonians. Remember in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, where it says, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And remember what I reminded you. Set apart means for a specific function so that you could know him and love him. Joel Beakey offers this insight. He says, quote, justification is the criminal pardoned. Sanctification, the patient healed. The union of both of these constitutes salvation. That's good. You're pardoned. You're healed. You're pardoned and healed. But for some, sanctification is a word that describes someone so holy, so near moral perfection, that we hold that person in arm's length in some sort of awe. You know, we think of the sanctified. Brother, are you, are you born again, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost, and do you step on the neck of the devil? And you think, how am I supposed to answer that? I'm saved, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, but sanctification, remember, 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 isn't simply a word that describes someone who has moral perfection, but rather it describes someone who has been set aside by God for a remarkable use. To know Him and to love Him. As a matter of fact, he'll say it, for obedience... And sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The elect are chosen by God the Father. Sanctified by God the Holy Spirit. And then covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. So what does Peter mean by obedience. And sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter speaks of the sacrifice of Jesus. And what it means for the sinner to be justified by that sacrifice. That's the idea. Paul uses the exact same expression in Romans chapter 5 verse 9. He says, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Here's what the Bible teaches. That human beings are sinners by nature and by choice. And that our sin has created this enormous rift, this chasm, this gap between God and human beings. And that gap is enmity between God and people. And that Jesus is the bridge that allows God to come to us and for us to go to God. In Numbers chapter 19, verse 9, it says, Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store Um, them outside the camp in a clean place and they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. It is for purifying from sin. Peter knows Numbers chapter 19 verse 9. The blood symbolizes the cleansing from sin. In the Old Testament, the believer was defiled by sin. And so it was necessary for sacrifice And the sprinkling of blood. 
But what was symbolic in the Old Testament becomes real in the New Testament because just like pe- people were sinners in the Old Testament, they're sinners in the New Testament. And Hebrews 9.13 says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? But you might be mistaken the point. The point isn't simply that Jesus' blood cleanses you from all sin. There's a context. And remember what the context is? There are people who are trying to kill us. We're running for our lives. My world is falling apart. I have this feeling that I've done something wrong. Maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe God is punishing me. Maybe the reason why I'm rejected instead of accepted, maybe the reason why people are trying to kill me is because there really is something wrong with me. And Peter says, there's nothing wrong with you. Don't you understand that you haven't been rejected by God, you've been accepted by God. Don't you understand that you're not still living defiled in sin, you've been cleansed from sin. Don't you understand why what's happening is happening to you? It's because you are different. God's salvation has made you real. And I know what some of you are thinking. No, what's real is I've lost my job. No, what's real is that I've lost my savings. No, what's real is that my wife or my husband has left me. No, what's real is I don't know how I'm going to pay the taxes to the government. No, what's real is everything is collapsing in around me and I just want to make a run for it. That's what's real. And Peter says that's not what's real. What's real is everything that you are in God through Christ. That's what's real. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The point that Peter is making is that we are purified by the sacrifice of Jesus, and salvation, salvation is always, always by innocent blood. Salvation is always through a person. Salvation is always by grace. Salvation is always through faith. And so those who are chosen by the Father, not frozen by sin, those sanctified by the Spirit rather than magnified in their own flesh, those cleansed by the blood of Jesus rather than washed in the baptism of their own self-righteousness, these are the ones that God has ordained for grace and peace. No wonder he says the familiar greeting, grace to you and peace. Now remember, grace is undeserved favor. And the term undeserved is the key concept. Human beings don't deserve God's favor. Human beings can't earn God's approval. Human beings can't earn God's blessing. God is too high and too holy and man is too low and unholy to deserve anything from God. Man is imperfect and God is perfect. And therefore it's unreasonable for man to expect anything from God other than judgment and condemnation and punishment. But God makes it possible to experience grace and peace. He's the one who's initiated the plan. Yeah, you don't deserve it. Because he's the source of salvation. Peace means binding, joining, weaving two things that were separate and making them come back together. We have God's love and we have God's care and we have God's promise to provide, God's promise to guide, God's promise to strengthen, God's promise to sustain, God's promise to deliver, God's promise to encourage now and forever. 
You know, in 1981, there was a strange event that took place. A Minnesota radio station reported a story about a stolen car in California. And police were staging an intense search for the vehicle and the driver, even to the point of placing announcements on local radio stations to contact the thief. And the reason why, on the front seat of the stolen car, there was a box of crackers. But unknown to that thief... The box of crackers were laced with rat poison. Because the guy who had the crackers thought, hey, I'm going to kill all the rats at my house. But now the police and the owner of the Volkswagen were more interested in apprehending the thief. Not in order to prosecute him for stealing the car, but to save his miserable life. And that's how it is when we run from God. We feel it's necessary to escape. Because we're afraid of the punishment that we might face. But you need to understand something. That when you run from God. What you're really running from is the rescue. You're running from the very person who can rescue you. And that's just the first two verses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do commit this time to you again, Lord. Lord, we know that grace is available for everyone who knows and loves and trusts Jesus. That peace is available for the person who's willing to confess their sin and come to you, Lord, on the terms that you've prescribed in the person of Jesus Christ. But Lord, sadly, some will continue to run. And some will continue to nibble at the little provision that they found in the front seat of their Volkswagen. A car that they never really were supposed to have. Or that they've gotten through ill-gotten gains. Lord, we know that everything in our life is a gift from you. You've given us life and you've given us breath and you've given us a provision. And yet, Lord, there are some of us who still embrace the thinking of the world. Instead of rejecting this world's affections, some of us embrace them and accept them. No wonder, no wonder Peter devotes this short blurb to remind people on the run that everything that can be taken away, the one thing that can never be taken away is mercy and grace and forgiveness and peace and love and joy and the reality, the reality, the reality of what, what, what it means to know and love and serve Jesus. It makes perfect sense, Lord. That our salvation is what makes us real to you. That the pain and the persecution and the suffering is not what makes us real. You're what makes us real, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.